Specialty Story, session number 201. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. And welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty, what led them to it, what they love about it, what they don't like about it, and words of wisdom for you. This week, I get to talk to a pediatric neurologist who specializes in clinical neurophysiology and epilepsy. Today, we're talking to Dr. Anne Hislop about her journey to pediatric neurology and much more. We start the conversation by talking about how she got into pediatric neurology and epilepsy to begin with. Okay. Well, I know that only kind of looking back did I realize how interested I was in neurology because growing up I had, I have a brother who has pretty severe Tourette's. Um, He's one of the most brilliant people I know. And, you know, I, he self-diagnosed himself when he started reading, um, some books. And only later when I was in college, did I realize that that was really, um, a true diagnosis. And that was from Oliver Sacks. We were both avid readers and loved Oliver Sacks. And so he had read about a surgeon, um, with Tourette's and had said, you know, this is something that I feel. And so he has, grown into a successful computer engineer in South California, and he still struggles with corporalalia and um, motor tics and other vocal tics as well. And so he definitely has a true form of Tourette's, and I've seen him kind of grow through the different stages of trying to deal with that and manage that. And so in college, I kept being attracted to neurology, whether it was through just a combination of different types of like, you know, not just neuroscience classes, but chemistry and biology and psychology. And so I ended up doing a major in neuroscience and in biology with a minor in psych. And then I ended up going to medical school um, in every rotation when I finally got to my clinical rotations, kind of noticed all my projects, all my papers, all my interests had something to do with neurology. And I thought, well, maybe it was because I was a neuroscience undergrad major, but kept coming back to it. And so I said, why fight it? And so by the time the match came around, I knew all I wanted to do was neurology. Now, I actually didn't get exposure to adult neurology until after I had entered the match. So I had had a pediatric neurology rotation that was amazing and ended up matching into Pete's neuro, not listing any adult neuro (laughs) residencies. Um, and, um, was ended up in my residency doing about half my time in adult neuro and half my time in Pete's neuro. And I loved it. I mean, it was fantastic to be able to have that much adult neuro going into a career in Pete's. And so I ended up, um, 
you know, when, when they came around and asked like, <laughs> what impedes neuro do you want to do during your, during my, you know, like interviews for residency, they're asking me what within that field I would want to do. And I said, I have no idea. I mean, I barely could <laughs> get to choosing a field in time for the match. And one of the things I did say was not epilepsy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and I don't really know exactly why, but maybe I didn't understand it and know like enough about it. And by the time I finished my pediatric neurology residency at Seattle Children's, I knew that was the only thing I wanted to do. And not only that, I only wanted to really do um, a fellowship where I could get epilepsy surgery training. And so my primary interest is in epilepsy surgery evaluations for kids with medically intractable epilepsy. And so that's really kind of how I ended up um, kind of getting to where I am now. And I can't imagine doing anything else. And I don't know why anybody goes into medicine and doesn't go into neurology. (laughs) So so I absolutely love what I do. Um, It's amazing. Uh, You know, aside from the demands that every physician has in terms of like medical record, you know, documentation and paperwork kinds of things, I, I, aside from those, you know, ups and downs that I have, I, I wake up every morning so excited to like just get into my work and with all the kind of the projects they have ongoing and in, in the clinical care. And so I, I feel like I made the right decision every, every fork in the road that I hit. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I, I only wish that on every, uh, student going through training and, and finding their specialty that they can wake up and enjoy their specialty every day. Like it sounds like yeah. you do, which is great. Yeah. Um, j- just a, a quick aside, you mentioned Oliver Sacks for, for those of you who don't know, Oliver Sacks is a, a famous, um, author and neurologist who, um, who's now passed, but go, go read his books, some good books out there. Um, you, you mentioned, um, as as you were going through this journey, you knew one thing for certain that you didn't want to do epilepsy, but here you are. How did you get to that point? Because obviously something opened up your eyes to this specialty that maybe you just didn't know enough about, as you mentioned. I think a lot of students go through their training and and they have a list of the, everything they know they don't want to do. And, and I'm not sure if they truly understand why they don't want to do it. And and you came around and saw the light for epilepsy. How, how did you do that? And and maybe what advice do you have for someone else who may be dead set on not doing something, but it may be their, their specialty of their dreams? Yeah, you know, I, I think it really, there is just such a lack of exposure when we're in medical school to all the opportunities out there. And it's almost like, we get exposed to just a smattering of things. And then where our exposure is low, we may be missing something entirely that we would truly enjoy. So, and I realize there's just not enough time in medical school to get all the exposure that there is that, that exists. But, you know, I think, um, you know, I I think that a podcast like this would have been helpful. I mean, (laughs) I, I didn't, you know, like this didn't exist certainly back when I was in, in uh, medical school, and then talking with more people um, that were already in medicine would have been helpful. I mean, I come from a long, long line of doctors in my family, but 
outside of their specialties, I didn't really know people in the medical field. And so I wish I had taken more time to go to whatever they offered, like mixers or, you know, have a mentor in a field that I didn't know about. You know, one of the, I, you know, I did my, I was assigned pediatric urology in my, after the match. And I thought, oh my gosh, urology, like this is the opposite (laughs) end. Although I love it when I get misdirected urology pages, right? So, (laughs) and I get to say no wrong service, (laughs) but urology was fascinating. And I thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this field, you know, what it looked like in the mix of procedures and clinical care. And so who knows if I had gotten exposed to that earlier, had I been in a different path? So I think it's just increasing your exposure where you can. Yeah, definitely. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around epilepsy? Well, so that it is not curable, mm. which I is, um, there is no better um, satisfaction in, you know, is it is curable in a subset of patients, not for everybody, but the fact that you could actually take a chronic neurologic disease and cure it is truly the most satisfying thing I have ever done. And that's through epilepsy surgery. And so, you know, I think that and that epilepsy is, is more rare than, than it is. I have friends that are physicians and even epileptologists that developed epilepsy later in life. Mm. And there are a lot of people that, that have it, you would never know, or maybe grew up with it, had a, had a sibling with it. And so it is far more, frequent and far more common than you would you would think. It doesn't just occur in people that have developmental delays or have a brain injury or have a brain malformation. You know, there are so many different um, etiologies, some of which we never understand and identify that that cause epilepsy and some later in life. And so there are some of us who may go on to develop epilepsy even now. So, you know, I think I think that that is a really common misconception. Um, so there are a lot of misconceptions too about the care of seizures and things that I think we all get to get straightened out in in medical school. But you know, for people that aren't in in medicine, that's one of the biggest challenges is how to help people through seizures. But yeah, when when patients come to you, are they coming to you after a first seizure? Are they coming to you with a diagnosis of epilepsy? How, like, wh- where are you in their point of contact? So I see. So about. I would estimate 80% of the new patients I see have had just a first seizure or they had some febrile seizures when they were younger and they had their first unprovoked seizure. Mm. And then about 20% of the new patients I see, maybe a bit more than that, are second opinions. So they have a diagnosis of epilepsy. They've come, they become medically intractable, meaning they've tried two, two seizure meds that are appropriately chosen, didn't have side effects, you know, went to the optimal di- optimal um, dose and continued to have seizures. So they're considered medically intractable. And so they come to, to me and at, at my center where we do these epilepsy surgery evaluations. Um, so it's a, it's a fairly good mix, but I do see a lot that are still undiagnosed, maybe a, or abnormal movements, mm-hmm. even not necessarily known to have had a seizure. Now talk about it. You, you've mentioned a couple of times now, the epilepsy surgery aspect of this, what does that look like for you? So, um, epilepsy surgery, um, in children and in adults, it's, it's, it's some of it's actually very similar between the two age groups. Um, once somebody has tried their second medication and they appear to have what, what looks like a focal uh, onset or even 
looks generalized. And until we get them into the into the hospital for a full 360 degree evaluation, do we realize there is some focality to their generalized appearing seizures? They come in and they have like uh, they have a high resolution MRI, meaning one millimeter cuts in every plane. Um, so it's a 3D volumetric MRI. We do a functional MRI to do some mapping in terms of like identifying where they're, make sure their motor cortices are where they, we expect them to be. We can identify which side Broca's is on, their expressive speech center, and identify their um, receptive speech areas and their, um, their kind of their visual cortices. And we map that using a functional MRI. We're doing more exciting things, looking at resting state MRI, so not giving them anything to do or think about or move in the scanner, but just the resting state networks that exist in a brain, not doing anything. And then they come onto the seizure units. We put, which a lot of people have in their hospitals or epilepsy monitoring unit, put EEGs, uh, EEG electrodes on. We might put 21. We might put 28, depending on the focality that we've seen on EGs in the past, put extra electrodes on, and then we record them in the unit, but we may reduce their medicines or stop them completely so that we capture seizures while they're there. And so they're in the safe place. And so once we, um, you know, lower their meds, they'll have seizures maybe three, four or five, 20 times. Um, and so that we can better identify if we can find a focus. And then we do math models where we superimpose electrical dipoles from the EEG onto their 3D volumetric MRIs. And so we can actually look in a 3D model, which sometimes we even print in, in, in our 3D printers um, to plan surgeries. We can put that together with even SPECT scans and PET scans. And so we can, it's kind of like we call it our 5D lab, right? So we're looking at things not in 3D, but we're adding all of this electrical and functional wow. information. And so then we can, uh, you know, we put the kids back on their meds, we make sure they're safe to go home. And then the, the following week, we have a conference where we present with our clinical neurophys fellows do the presentations. And we walk through the patient's data from when they were born all the way until the data that we have with neuroradiologists, neuropsychologists, um, all of the epileptologists and the neurosurgeons. And we sit and we ask ourselves, is this patient a good surgical candidate? Can we have a cure? What percent chance can we offer this patient of being seizure-free after a surgery? And then based on that, we can tell the patient, look, we are offering surgery, or maybe we need to do a second step where we implant some electrodes in an area we think is the epileptogenic zone. We want to verify it. We want to map your eloquent areas like speech before we take out this area. And then, and so then we're able to give the families a lot more information. Sometimes we come out and we say, look, there's not a surgical, uh, there's nothing that we can do to cure this, but we have palliative measures. We have devices we can implant, neurostimulators on the area that, that would detect seizure activity as it's starting, give it a stimulation, stop it. Some that go into the thalamus just that turn on and off. Some that sit in the neck on the vagus nerve that turn on and off. These are palliative neurostimulators that we can offer that can really, really help patients reduce the number or the severity of their seizures. Wow. Now, you mentioned something that probably most most people won't wouldn't have heard, but you said mapping which side broke a is on. Yeah. I thought yeah. Broca's is on the left side. Wernicke's on the left side. Are right. you telling me it can be on the other side? Can. So in Latin, a lot of left-handers, it is on the right, is in the right front. And so we actually, in kids with epilepsy, sometimes we see representation on both sides. 
So, so depending on where their speeches, where their seizures are, if they have seizures in an area adjacent to Broca's, anatomic Broca's, mm -hmm. it may actually have slightly been shifted or pushed away. And sometimes it's actually pulled towards the area of epileptogenesis. So it can shift. And so, yes, it's not always exactly in the same place. It's usually pretty close, but wow. it can be on the right or left side. Interesting. I don't know if I yeah. why I yeah. forgot that or yeah. it's just like left side. It's always left side. I um, know. I know. Most of us are right handers, so most of us, about ninety five percent of right handers, it'll be on the left side. Yeah. What about weirdos like me, where I throw left handed but I write yeah. right handed? Like so. Yeah. So we always, and that's one of the reasons why the functional MRI can be helpful because there are people like that. That do you have you throw one side, write the other, or people wonder I'm left footed, I'm right handed. How does that affect me? But that's why we always check it. Yeah. And, and sometimes the functional MRI doesn't tell us clearly enough. And so we actually have to implant electrodes over Broca's area and then do electrical stimulation mapping at bedside. So I'll like stimulate the area where we think their speech is mm -hmm. while I'm having them name cards. And I follow certain like, you know, kind of uh, protocols in order to identify where Broca's is maximal, identify the margins of it and to be able to tell the surgeon, look, we got to stay on this gyrus. We got to stay, you know, in front of this one and behind this one. And then we can't go above this part of the inferior frontal gyrus. And so I'm able to really map it out and tell them when we're, when we're not sure that's how we'll do it. Wow. For, for some other people, I've had movement disorder specialists on other neurologists, typically adult neurologists who, it sounds like they do very similar things, but just for a different reason. Would, would you mm -hmm. say that comparison is, is true? Yes, it is true. I think with, um, movement, um, you know, it's kind of, it's true you march through medications for a movement disorder, and then you might go to a neurostimulator, um, implantation for it. And so there are some good, there are some clear parallels there. Yeah. Yeah. it sounds like, uh, from a procedure standpoint, very similar, like being in the operating room and having a yeah. patient talk and, Oh, that, that was the spot right, right there. Right. 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 That's very interesting. That's cool. So what does the, the training path look like to, to become you? So it's after your um, either pediatric or adult neurology uh, residency, then you can do one or two fellowship years. So there are two ACGME accredited fellowships that can lead you to where I am. One has been established for decades and it's clinical neurophysiology. It's a one-year fellowship. And the second one was just established a few years ago and it's epilepsy. And so right now we have about 91 CNP programs and about 81 epilepsy programs in the U.S. Um, it's it's pretty impressive because epilepsy has only been around um, for five years or so, and and already the number of programs has almost matched that of CNP. Don't think CNP is going away, but um, you take either one or the other. CNP is more concentrated on the neurophysiology. So you're an EEG -er first and foremost. You learn EEG, the intricacies. You learn how to do source localization, which is what I talked about, putting putting dipoles on the on the brain to understand where the epilepsy is. You know the most um, the strongest epileptogenic zone is, or where what it's where it is based on what you can see on the EEG. And then you're also exposed to intraoperative monitoring. So you look you learn how to read spinal. Um, 
you had learned how to monitor spines and nerves, peripheral nerves while in the OR, while neurosurgeons are working with them or the spinal surgeon is working on the patient. We also do EMG and nerve conduction studies and training. So we'll do actually like, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, learn how to do the carpal tunnels and kind of the basic EMG and nerve conduction. Some people take that, a lot of people take that training and that is the emphasis of their training and they become, you know, they go into neuro neuromuscular. And so they are the, that is a large air. That's kind of a large field in adult neurology. It's much smaller in peds. And then there is those that go the CNP route and go into sleep. And so they're reading polysomnograms. And so CNP is widely variable, but there are kind of different tracks that, that certain uh, institutions will offer. And so therefore, like at our institution, we don't have an epilepsy fellowship. We have a CMP and it is largely epilepsy, but it's nice to get exposure to the other neurophysiologic uh, techniques because it helps you to understand the EEG better, to understand nerve, tra nerve transmission, how it shows up on um, the technology that we have and that we use now. And so I really liked it. I mean, I, I it was a nice variable um, kind of fellowship. It's one year and then you're done. And so what is common now, in my understanding, in adult um, epilepsy, in many institutions, you have to do a CNP year first, and then you do an epilepsy year. So you do your CNP year and you get exposed to different ways to monitor peripheral and central nervous system. And then your second year, you're really concentrating on epilepsy and the management of, of, of epilepsy. In PEDS, there's not so many of us, of, of the fellowships that require you to do two years. If you're an adult neurologist, you've, you've gone and you've done, um, you know, five years of training for us. We've done two years of PEDS um, and then three years of neurology. We've done five years. We go into a six year. And so it, ours is actually compared to the four years of adult neurology plus one year of CMP or epilepsy, ours is a year longer. So a lot of PEDS programs will make sure that you get as much as you can in one year and you don't have to do a CNP and epilepsy year. And so that's kind of been what's traditionally happened in the last few years. And I think, it, I don't imagine it will change too much. So once you go through PEDS neuro, you know, doing one year, uh, either CMP or epilepsy is pretty common. Now, just, just for clarification, CNP, clinical neurophysiology for, for everyone. Um, what does call look like for you? Well, so it varies. Um, it really varies institution to institution. In my institution, we, I, I feel it's as program director. I feel it's very important that we consider our no call policy. So when 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 people come out of residency and they're tired and they're studying for their neurology boards, we want them to be on point and learning during the day. At night, we want the night to be there as we want them to get good rest. And so what call amounts to is really just coming in every few weekends on a Saturday or Sunday for like two or three hours. And in the line, like now in COVID, it can be done remotely so that they're helping read some weekend EEGs. There's no overnight call. And so, um, you know, it's a year to really learn this technique, to, to learn this technology. To, so that when you leave this program, you can read an EEG, whether it's from a 24-week preemie to uh, a, an adult with a childhood disease like Rett syndrome, and you're reading their EEG and they're 33 years old, 
you can read it cold. You understand it, you know the implications, and you have no doubts. And it takes a long time and a lot of exposure to get to that point. And so reading in the middle of the night is not good learning in term, like from our perspective. So we want you to be on point during the day, go home and rest, and then start again the next day. Nice. What do you think for for students going through this training, if they're interested in it, what do you think makes them competitive to, to match in residency or fellowship? You know, um, I think in a lot of specialties, you might get, I don't know, uh, you might get the answer like research and publishing. And honestly, for this, we look for people who want to be intellectually challenged, who are detail-oriented, who are going to keep pushing until they understand. We don't expect people to have come in with a long list of publications or projects. We still feel like when you get to this point, you have so much to learn that you can't have really started your CV um, and, and, you know, it started to round it out. And so it's honestly, a, it's like a, a detailed technical person that um, is very motivated to keep pushing and understanding. And that sounds very vague, but that's honestly what we look for. It doesn't help when you have, because so many people come through this specialty and they don't want to go into academic medicine. They're not going to go and be president of the American Epilepsy Society. They're not going to be, they're going to be in the community. They're going to be reading EGs. They're going to be treating epilepsy, or they may be reading EMGs and nerve conduction and EEGs and working in a community setting. And so we have all kinds of fellows with all kinds of different interests and and goals. And so those that do come in, it's a one-year fellowship. We're not expecting people to come in and start publishing. It's hard to get a a project from start to finish and publish in one year. And so we have some ongoing projects that people can take take part in and to get some publications. But it's, I mean, we're really, this is, it's a very different fellowship from a three-year fellowship. This is, you come in and you have to, you just need to be able to just learn and get down your EG skills and and then get out being really top flight. Yeah. What is what is the residency like since or fellowship like um, as the program director there? What is what does a day in the life look like for a fellow? So our fellows will um, will usually come into the hospital between five thirty and seven, depending on how many EEGs there are. They'll read on their own, going through EEGs um, until eight thirty. At eight thirty. I'll sit with a seizure unit fellow who has all of the the kids that we've lowered meds on and that are coming in for overnight monitoring or the whole the whole shebang, and we'll sit and we'll read the EG together. Meanwhile, I am in my office looking through the EG bef- while they're looking through it so that I can get a feel for the EG and I don't waste their time by trying to see the whole thing over their shoulder. At 8.30, we sit down for about an hour and we go through all of the EGs, the questions they have. You know, we talk about what kinds of things are, are interesting, what kinds of things are normal variants, because that's so much of the learning. And then I will excuse myself to go round. 
they will sit and, and they'll work on their reports. They'll finish reading the EG because every second that they're doing a report, there's another second of EEG coming in. And so it's not like I'm going to take them and force them to see patients or, you know, do other things. It's, it's just a, it's just a constant, um, we're constantly acquiring data that they're going to have to go through. And so then they sit the rest of the day to go through EGs. We usually have a conference almost once a day where we sit and we review EGs as a team. Several of us neurologists and epileptologists will sit and review with them. Um, and then later in the afternoon, kind of our gold standard neurophysiologist, who was actually our first fellow in 1988, he will come and he will sit with them and go through, instead of looking at the whole EEG, he'll take two seconds of the EG and he'll say, well, let's draw this out. Where is this negativity? Where is this positivity? So that's why it's on the, you know, the mesial aspect of the occipital lobe rather than being on the contralateral side, you know? And so it sounds like picky minutiae, but then the next time you see it in the EG, you don't need to draw it out. You know where this is coming from. And so then by the end of the day, they sign some reports, some they may still continue to work on the next day, but they sign reports, go home. And then the next day they start again. And every day of the week is slightly different, but that's kind of the basic layout. Yeah. Interesting. Do you see any negative bias towards osteopathic students? So, you know, I really have not. Um, I think, you know, we have had several in our program. I've worked with several. And it's not something that I have ever heard anybody mention or identify and frankly, it's it's just not been on our radar um, as uh, like everybody is just the same. I, I like it's yeah, it's it's almost like an odd question for me because I, I have never thought about that as being a, any kind of issue. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. For the future primary care docs out there listening to this, uh, or or maybe general neurologists potentially who may refer to you, what do you wish they knew? Um, about what you're doing day in and day out to help you do your job and help to help them help their patients? Uh, honestly, our, like, the neurologists and pediatricians, PCPs that refer to us, they're so fantastic. I, I don't know that there's much that I can say that will help them. I I do want them to know how much we appreciate their notes, even no matter how, like, seemingly, you know, bland they may be, it tells us so much about a child when we've seen them over time in the notes, like, oh, an illness here and there, they get them vaccinated, they're doing this, their development is this. this. These kinds of things really help when you sit down and you're trying to evaluate a child in a one-week period or in a one-session, one-outpatient visit, you know, who has lived seven years and the seven years have been kind of active or have had some developmental hiccups that actually become really important when we consider them for something like epilepsy surgery or the ketogenic diet or an implant. So those things actually really do help us. And so just getting those notes and having us go through it, uh, I mean, it's, that's, that's great. We don't always get the notes, but that's part of our medical system issues. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. You mentioned ketogenic diet. A lot of people don't know that the keto diet was created for epilepsy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, was. it was, you know, it's, um, we have a, you know, there's been a renewed interest in it since it became a bit of a fad a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And so it is, it is something that can be 
very helpful for children with medically intractable epilepsy. We don't use it typically as a first line option. It is pretty extreme when you do it right. You know, you got to supplement with selenium. You got to do, watch the cluster, you know, there's all these things that we got to do. And so um, it's, it's can be a very effective diet. We may use it up to about two years. In some cases we'll use it longer, especially in certain gene defects, but it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, it, it can be a really great thing for some kids. That's for sure. Yeah. The, um, the other big thing potentially out there, uh, just along the lines of keto just got me thinking I'm in Colorado where, uh, we are the kind of the epicenter of the cannabis industry. And and that seems potentially to have some benefit in epilepsy as well. How, How much of that, uh, are you dealing with as a epileptologist? So a lot. So we were in the earliest tri- trials for cannabidiol, or the brand is Epidiolex, um, that was created by GW Pharma, and it's grown from a plant in the UK at one of the sativa plants. Um, we were in the early trials for that that's um, on Dravet patients, patients with a, a, a certain genetic abnormality, um, Dravet syndrome, as well as Linux gastaut syndrome, another form of medically intractable epilepsy and developmental issues. And so we saw it, um, we've been using it for several years. It can be a very good, uh, it's another almost like medication option. Um, you know, it's, it's cannabidiol that's extracted. The THC is extracted out of the plant um, after it's crystallized, and then it is placed in the sesame oil that's strawberry flavored and given twice a day. And so we know the dosing and how to increase it. Um, you know, some kids struggle with constipation, some kids struggle struggle with sleepiness, or you know, there are some drug interactions we look out for. But all in all, it's a pretty um, easy to use uh, new uh, medication, and it's become increasingly accessible even for those without those two syndromes. So we we do use it. It's in our armamentarium. Um, I have a lot of children on it, frankly. Um, sometimes it it doesn't do, you know, doesn't do anything. Other times it can be very helpful. So it is something that we use. Um, I try to get my patients who are using uh, proprietary blends that we don't really know what's in it, or if there is any CBD in it, I try to get them switched over to a product that we know has been tested. And so I know how to safely dose it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's been a, it's another, it's another good addition to what we have. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into this field? That there would be quite so much paperwork and documentation. (laughs) (laughs) Neurologists are not known for short notes. (laughs) No. So I can tell you though, I, you know, I have started to be more succinct in my notes. Um, whereas I used to always have lengthy differentials, my thought processes. I realize a lot of these patients that I've had, I've had for 10 years. So I'm like reading my own, (laughs) I'm reading my own, like, I don't know, uh, like, you know, waxing eloquence, like visit after visit. And I'm like, why am I doing this? This is just, just for my own entertainment or something. I don't know. I think it's good exercise, but after a while, I think, you know, I've become more succinct and I'm starting to use even, um, you know, a 
a program that's a AI program, AI driven software that can listen to a conversation, distill it down and put it into a note without you having to take notes. It's not a trend. It doesn't transcribe. It actually is an AI program. So I'm hoping that this is something that's going to continue to get better and better with time so that we can all start to use this so that at the end of the day, there's not, um, you know, another hour to three hours of laborious notes and documentation. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that will happen. Um, and I'm surprised it's gotten as far as it has. So we'll, we'll see, but yeah, the documentation's kind of, it's a, it's a, it's excessive. Yeah. I, I'm assuming that that goes along the lines of what you like least about your job. What do you like the yes. most about yeah. your job? Honestly, it really is when I'm able to cure epilepsy, when I'm able to take somebody's seizures away and get them off of medications, have them start driving, see them have families, you know, that is just, there is just nothing better. There is nothing better that. And even, you know, I have patients that will never outgrow their epilepsy. They'll never have surgery. The devices are implanted and they don't work. And, And when they're caregivers and sometimes the patients themselves are still grateful that I have walked them through you know, every step that that's huge in my eyes that just, you know, it's something that you almost have to stop and reflect on because you don't, it's it's not something that's, you know, in your face every day, like, like the failures or the, the, you know, that your failures and getting somebody seizure free, those are the ones that really stick with you and you take to bed. Um, but this, when somebody is thankful and they express that, it's just, that's, it's nothing, nothing quite so great. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. What what major changes potentially do you see coming to the field of of epilepsy that that maybe someone going through training now or or medical school um, or, or even as an undergrad pre med student uh, may want to be aware of as they're choosing a career? Um, I think that technology we are shoulder to shoulder with technology in EEG and epilepsy. We are you know, we work closely with industry. We work closely with pharma, like the pharma guys. We, there are so many different opportunities and things that could change. I think EEG itself is here to stay. I don't think any computer algorithm is going to replace that and our need to look over it as a human anytime soon. Um, I think that we will be utilizing it more. Um, We'll be using things like deep learning to come up with methods by which we can predict how successful something like epilepsy surgery or a certain implant will be in controlling someone's seizures. I think that targeting of genetic diseases, you know, that has already started. We're already trying to make inroads in, in Dravet syndrome, for example, and in, in, in kind of changing what a gene, um, how a gene affects somebody. And so I think that those are really exciting areas and they are coming down so fast that they're not going to just be helpful for, for somebody in an academic center. They're going to be helpful for the community neurologist sooner than you think. And I think um, that's a really exciting place to be. And so I, I um, you know, and there's, you know, there's so much exciting stuff in within epilepsy and EEG that um, it's going to be, it's going to be a place that people will, they may not know it, but they'll want to be there. They'll want to be doing this. It's very exciting. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a an epileptologist? Yes. Yeah. And I probably wouldn't have answered 
just not epilepsy. Like (laughs) (laughs) I look back at that and I, and I, I definitely laugh, but, um, I, I wouldn't do anything different, um, in terms of choosing the specialty. I might take things a little bit slower. Um, I, I work hard. I work a lot. Um, I think, you know, it's, something that we all have to be, uh, on the lookout for is like working too much or, um, getting to, you know, saying yes too many times. So that can happen in any specialty though, you know? And so I would choose the same one over for sure. I might just take it a little slower. Any last words of wisdom for the student or resident out here, out out there listening to this now thinking about clinical neurophysiology or epileptology? I would just say, you know, if you can spend some time with somebody who has done a CNP fellowship, has done training in EG or EMG, nerve conduction, you know, and see what they do. It's such a great mix of procedures. You know, I am people, when people meet me, they think I am an extrovert that I, you know, love just seeing patient after patient. But honestly, I'm an introvert at heart and sitting and reading EGs for me is like reading music. It's just in a, a way I can sit with a cup of coffee. It's a great mix. So I can kind of have my restoration, my emotional like restoration while I'm reading. And then I can go out and see patients refreshed. And so it's just such a great mix. And I, I would urge anybody that's even thinking about it, just to try to spend some time with somebody who does this type of mix of, you know, reading procedures as well as clinical care. It's very rewarding and it's, it's, it's a pace that can be really, really very, very sustainable for decades. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Ann Hislop, pediatric neurologist specializing in clinical neurophysiology and epilepsy. If you are interested in finding out more about clinical neurophysiology and epilepsy, check out aesnet.org. Again, aesnet.org. That's the American Epilepsy Society. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. Mm -hmm.